Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A mysterious flying object that terrifies a city. People start to speculate. What was this thing that I saw? A work of art that inspires a desperate act of violence. This became an early instance of the dark side of celebrity. And a primitive robot way ahead of its time. No one had seen anything of this capability before. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Not far from the glitz and glamour of Hollywood is a museum dedicated to Los Angeles's lesser-known history, its military might. This is the Fort MacArthur Museum. From 1914 to 1974, Fort MacArthur was an active army base, guarding the scenic L.A. harbor from enemy attack. With its tanks, rifles, and anti-aircraft guns, most museum visitors overlook this rusty two-inch piece of metal. But museum director Stephen Nelson knows that it goes to the heart of one of the most bizarre episodes in the city's history. When you stop to think about what this little piece of metal is, it's really a tangible link to the events of February 25th, 1942. That night, the citizens of Los Angeles were stunned by a bizarre and terrifying sight. People start to speculate, what is this? What was this thing that I saw? 
What role did this shard of metal play in the otherworldly events of one February night in L.A.? 1942. The world is at war. U.S. citizens are still reeling from the recent bombing of Pearl Harbor. Los Angeles has been thrust from a relatively secure possession of the United States really into the front lines. On February 24th, a Japanese submarine attacks an oil refinery near Santa Barbara, California, just 95 miles outside of Los Angeles. And this is one of the first times that the coast has ever been attacked. This is a time of holy smoke. The Japanese have attacked California. Then, at 2 a.m. that same night, military radar picks up an unidentified flying craft, and it's heading straight toward L.A. If they are given the green alert, that means they are to shoot at anything that is in the sky. Shortly after 3 a.m., the anti-aircraft searchlight units see something in the sky. At the same time, people all over Los Angeles are reporting seeing something strange in the skies above the city. This was sort of this glowing, hovering, drifting object, sort of disc-shaped. This is just a big mystery, if you will. What is up there? Once those lights lock onto this thing, all hell breaks loose. Guns blazing, the soldiers shoot over a thousand rounds of 15-pound bullets at the unknown craft. The result is total panic. The civilians, of course, are just going, oh my God, what's happened? Thousands of people looking skyward and not really sure of what they're seeing. For one hour, the sky is lit up with a barrage of anti-aircraft fire. Then, just after 4 a.m., the shooting stops. But something isn't right. There's nothing really that's coming to the ground other than shrapnel. And one would think if there was an attack going on, there would at least be maybe one airplane shot down or something. So some people in the public have determined that maybe this is something beyond man-made. But if it's not man-made, what is it? Could it be a UFO from a galaxy far, far away? An LA Times photograph comes out that shows this sort of murky object illuminated by searchlights in the sky. And many people have speculated that there was a spacecraft or an extraterrestrial thing. But the Navy has a very different explanation. The Secretary of the Navy, of course, immediately calls a press conference and says, look, there was nothing up there that night. Everyone's on edge, and they just open fire at nothing. Whatever the case is, speculation arises that this is a cover-up. So was this really a UFO? Did aliens visit L.A. in 1942? For decades, the question lies unresolved. Until finally, in 1983, the truth begins to emerge. In the 1980s, the Office of Air Force History uh, commissioned a study to try and come up with a definitive answer as to what happened. 
Japanese records concluded that there were no aircraft launched over Los Angeles that night. This was not an attack by the Japanese. If it wasn't the Japanese, what was it? After interviewing veterans who were there that night, the Office of Air Force History comes to a startling conclusion. The 37th Anti-Aircraft Brigade had accounts from personnel that were involved in the activities that night. It was not aircraft, it was actually meteorological balloons. Meteorological balloons, or weather balloons, were often used by the military during the 1940s to gauge the success of prospective anti-aircraft test firings. Every four hours, battery would launch a meteorological balloon so that the gun directors could then factor in wind speed into their flight path of their projectiles. With the Japanese attacking an oil refinery 95 miles outside of Los Angeles the day before, the men who launched the weather balloons didn't anticipate how their actions would be interpreted. And many suspect they were too embarrassed to come forward after spreading panic throughout the city of Los Angeles. Despite these findings, skeptics still remain. Witnesses who believe that the glowing orb they saw that night must have been a visitor from another planet. Today, the shrapnel in the Fort MacArthur Museum is all that remains from a terrifying night when the citizens of Los Angeles thought they were being attacked. Vintage cars, experimental art, and the Great Western Migration. These are just some of the themes on display at the Oakland Museum of California. And among the impressive works of art is this statue. Its shocking history is one of the most gripping tales in the annals of California. The sculpture is about six feet tall. It's made from Carrera marble. One of the more popular pieces in the gallery. People really notice it. Museum curator Drew Johnson knows the woman depicted by this sculpture was once considered the most beautiful girl in all of California. This sense of regional pride. We're going to show people that, that California beauties are the the greatest beauties in the country. The woman chosen to model for this statue should have lived a blissful life of fame and adoration. But her life took a decidedly different path. Unfortunately, this became an early instance of the dark side of celebrity. What happened to the woman immortalized in marble? And how did her crowning achievement also lead to her downfall? It's 1893, San Francisco, California. Hundreds of young women eagerly enter a local beauty contest. The winner will have her likeness sculpted in the classical style of Venus, the goddess of love, and her title will be the California Venus. The statue will represent California at the 1893 World's Fair. Newspapers published photographs of the young girls draped in cheesecloth. This was pretty hot stuff for 1893. On the one hand, there's a lot of concern for propriety and that they not be completely nude. But on the other hand, the newspaper accounts are very clearly kind of exploiting the sexiness of the, of the whole thing. The judges expect a tough, drawn-out contest until their eyes light upon a photograph of 16-year-old Marion Nolan. So other than her beauty, Marion Nolan seems like a perfectly average, 
middle-class girl in San Francisco who was not at all prepared for the fame that was about to fall on her. Marion wins the competition and becomes the talk of California. And when the statue is unveiled, this average girl becomes a celebrity overnight. And Marion Nolan is suddenly transformed from a typical 16-year-old to someone who's a symbol of beauty that is suddenly admired by women and desired by men. Now a celebrity in her own right, Marion decides to pursue a career on the stage. Unfortunately, all the theaters are willing to offer her at this point are appearances where she assumes classical poses, basically stand there and look pretty, which is the basis of her fame to begin with. And for the next few years, she acquires a fan base of ardent admirers. But one of them will change her life forever. His name? Edward Marschutz. He met Marion Nolan at a benefit for Spanish-American war soldiers where she was uh, assuming poses. (laughs) A failed actor and financial speculator, Marschutz is head over heels in love with Nolan. Like a lot of men, having once met Marion, he was completely smitten with her. But there's a problem. Marion doesn't reciprocate his affections. Despite the fact that Marion has indicated she's not interested, he continues to wait for her outside the theater and in the lobby of her apartment building. He's writing her letters, stating plans that he expects to carry out once they're married. Edward Marshutz is pretty much delusional. After months of unrequited love, a desperate Edward can bear the pain no longer. So what will Edward do? to ensure that he and Marion will be together forever. When 16-year-old Marion Nolan is crowned the most beautiful woman in California, she is immortalized in a marble statue now on display at the Oakland Museum of California. The statue brings Marion fame, fortune, and a host of admirers. But not all of them have her best interests in mind. October 1902. Marion's would-be lover, Edward Marschutz, cannot accept the fact that his love is unrequited. One day, he lies in wait to confront her on a San Francisco sidewalk. Marion has spent the day shopping with her mother. She's walking home by herself when Edward basically accosts her on the street. Frustrated that Marschutz will not leave her alone, Marion hits him repeatedly with her umbrella. At this point, it's obvious even to Edward that the situation is hopeless. She's walking away from him probably forever. And Edward makes sure that he will be the last jilted lover in Marion's life ever. In broad daylight, he reaches into his pocket, pulls out a revolver, approaches her, shoots her twice. She falls to the sidewalk, dead. With the love of his life gone forever, Edward decides to join her in the afterlife. Edward immediately puts the revolver to his temples, blows out his brains, falling across the body of the woman whom he apparently loved unto madness. The two bodies lie just a few feet apart and Edward finally gains the closeness to his sweetheart that had eluded him in life. 
The beautiful California Venus is lying dead in a pool of blood with the body of the man who, like so many others, adored her, but in this case could not live without her. Today, the immortalized figure of Marion Nolan stands in the Oakland Museum of California, a masterpiece whose beauty endures even after the life of its muse was cut short. Portland, Oregon's most populated city and home to the Oregon Historical Society. Here, museum curator Kerry Timchuk watches over relics of Oregon's past, including one object with a truly bizarre story. The artifact doesn't look like it's anything historic or important. It's a tire cover that one would put on its spare tire. It has some drawings on it and some, some printed letters and a very important message. It reads, Ex-Antelope, Oregon residents. Our city was stolen. A warning to others about a power-hungry group of religious extremists. Who are these people? And to what lengths would they go to expand their sphere of influence? Antelope, Oregon. This community, positioned in the middle of the state, has a very distinct character. Well, Antelope was one of Oregon's smallest communities, uh, a ranching, farming area with no major businesses. But the people there loved it. But in 1981, everything changes when a religious community called Rajneeshpuram purchases a nearby ranch. Rajneeshpuram was founded by uh, the believers and the spiritual leader who had the name of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his followers seek spiritual enlightenment through prayer, meditation, and sex. The Bhagwan's followers believed so strongly in him that they gave up their entire lives. They gave up their homes, they gave up their jobs, they gave up their bank accounts. The Bhagwan's ultimate goal is to build a utopian city. His closest advisor is Ma Anand Sheila. She is young, smart, and eager to turn the Bhagwan's dream into reality. Sheila had an idea, and the idea was to take over the city of Antelope. With a city council election looming, Sheila encourages Rajneeshi candidates to enter the race. The Rajneesh candidates won. They take over the city, and they change the name of the city. Antelope becomes the city of Rajneesh. Antelope residents are furious, and this tire cover is part of a campaign against the cult. But the Rajneeshis fight back and begin expanding at an alarming rate. They started to build structures that real cities had. What they didn't understand were Oregon's very strict land use laws. You can't just all of a sudden build a city overnight. Land use laws are made at the county level. Rather than obey those laws, Sheila begins plotting to take over the institution that makes them, the Wasco County Commission. Sheila selects a candidate to run in the upcoming countywide election. 
Fearing a takeover, the local community begins mobilizing voters to defeat the Rajneeshi candidates. But then, as the county prepares to cast their votes, something strange happens. Doctors notice that hundreds of residents suddenly get sick at the same time. They were vomiting, they had severe headaches, they had chills. Doctors test hundreds of patients and come back with a puzzling diagnosis, salmonella poisoning. Salmonella, of course, is a bacteria that's often associated with food poisoning. Left untreated, a salmonella infection can be fatal. Experts trace the source of the bacteria to several local restaurants and conclude the outbreak is an accident, the result of poorly cleaned kitchens. But some local residents aren't convinced. Their conclusion was that they had been poisoned, intentionally poisoned. Some of the ill had recently visited the Rajneeshpuram compound, and suspicion falls on the cult. In her desperate bid for power, could Sheila have resorted to poisoning? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1984, hundreds of Oregon residents fall victim to a salmonella outbreak. They begin to suspect that behind this apparent case of food poisoning is something far more sinister. So who is really responsible for this epidemic? 
Some of those who fell ill recently visited the compound of a local religious cult called Rajneeshpuram. And suspicion falls on the Rajneeshis' brash spokesperson, Ma'anand Sheila. And as Sheila's rhetoric becomes ever more violent, people begin to wonder, is Sheila, are the Rajneeshis behind the salmonella outbreak? There is no evidence against the cult, but the local community rallies to oppose them. And in the wake of the scandal, Sheila's candidate for the county commission withdraws from the election. And Sheila's bid to take over the county fails. Then, a year later, the Bhagwan calls an emergency press conference, and the case breaks wide open. And what he has to say is amazing. What he has to say is that Sheila has been doing bad things. The Bhagwan states that it was Sheila who poisoned the citizens of Wasco County. Police search the ranch and make a remarkable discovery. They find a chemical factory in one part of the ranch where people were making salmonella bacteria. The exact same strain of salmonella that caused the epidemic. Investigators learn that Sheila had ordered her agents to cultivate the highly toxic strain of bacteria, then developed a method for spreading it. Sheila had some of her disciples go to the restaurants with vials of the salmonella and sprinkle it in the salad bars so that anyone who ate from that salad bar would come down with food poisoning. 751 people fell sick. While many were admitted to the hospital, remarkably, there were no deaths. This is still today the largest incident of bioterrorism in the United States. But the question remains, why did Sheila carry out such a sinister plot? With all these people homesick, they wouldn't be able to go to the polls to vote. Sheila and her disciples would win the election. That was Sheila's grand scheme. Sheila and one of her associates are arrested for the poisoning and serve over four years in prison for their crimes. The Bhagwan is arrested for immigration violations and is deported to India. And the followers, the Rajneeshis, most of whom had no idea what was going on. They're just sent out on their own. In time, Antelope regains its name. And in the Oregon History Museum, this artifact remains a reminder of the religious cult that once took over the town and their sickening quest for expansion. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The city of brotherly love is home to one of the nation's most historic museums, the Franklin Institute. And a favorite among tinkerers and technophiles alike is its amazing machines exhibit. Beside innovations of the modern world is a prized antique with two small hands and the face of a young child. It resembles an aged doll, one that museum educator Derek Pitts knows is not your average plaything. What you see really is just an ornately carved box with these beautiful figures and columns. And then there's a small desk with a figure behind it. It's an extraordinary machine, more than two centuries old. So what does it do? 
And where does it come from? 1800, London, England. As the Industrial Revolution takes hold, the nation's capital city is gripped by a new fashion for all things mechanical. One wildly popular device is taking the city by storm, a complex robotic figurine called an automaton. An automaton is a mechanical device that mimics the behavior and movements of animals and people. These are clockwork machines run by springs, much like a music box. And the most admired maker of automata is Swiss clockmaker Henri Maillardet. His most celebrated creation is a large and lifelike automaton of a young boy. Its name? The Draftsman Writer. It can write and draw and attracts admirers from around the world, including one famous American businessman. It catches the attention of P.T. Barnum. Barnum then purchases this device and brings it to the United States to establish in a museum here in Philadelphia. But in 1851, Barnum's museum catches fire, burning to the ground. It seems that Meyerday's greatest automaton is lost forever. November 1928. A wooden crate filled with curious brass parts is donated to the Franklin Institute. It's not really well understood exactly what the device is supposed to do. The donors claim the parts once formed a valuable device called an automaton. So a challenge is taken on by a mechanic here named Charles Roberts to try to put this device back together. Roberts spends years meticulously piecing it back together until finally he has something that seems to make sense. A primitive robot, a doll perched behind a desk. Could this be the long-lost legendary automaton created by Maillardet? And if so, will it perform? It's 1928. An old box of brass knobs, springs, and levers is donated to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. When assembled, the contents take the form of a doll with extraordinary abilities. Is this doll really a primitive robot from the past? The mechanic who has worked tirelessly to put this device together, a man named Charles Roberts, is ready to see what it will do. He realizes that what the device actually is supposed to do is to write. He places a pen in its fragile white hands and a slip of paper on the desk. And when he cranks the machine, the pen touches the paper and the figure comes to life. The device can reproduce four drawings two cupids, one Chinese pagoda, and one sailing ship, and three poems, two in French, one in English. The drawings are intricate and detailed. The words are beautifully written and etched out. People are astonished at what this device can do. 
Roberts finds that the clue to the automaton's innovative engineering is in the doll's structure. Regular automata have their clockwork mechanisms stored within the bodies of the figurines. But this one is different. All of its memory is not stored in its body, but instead stored in a box down below. This kind of construction is revolutionary. Housing the memory in the box beneath the figure allows this automaton to do more than any other ever built. No one had seen anything of this capability before. There's certainly other devices around, but not with the capability that this one had. And final proof of the item's origins is remarkably hidden in one of its poems. One of the first things that this device wrote is that this poem is written by the automaton made by Maillardet. This is indeed the long-lost Maillardet automaton. And today, at the Franklin Institute, it's unmistakably doing what it was built to do, enchanting and astonishing its audiences with its exceptional artistry. Detroit, Michigan. In this capital of American industry is a museum honoring labor unions and worker reform. The Ruther Library at Wayne State University. Tucked away in its vast archives is a seemingly simple item. A letter typed on American Pilots Union stationery that archivist William Gully says looks deceivingly ordinary. It's a very formal business-like letter from one executive to another. But upon closer inspection, says archivist Mary Wallace, it becomes clear this is not your average correspondence. It's not until you actually see who it's to that you realize that it's something special. The letter is addressed to one of the most controversial figures of the 20th century, Fidel Castro. It contains a rare plea for justice between two sworn enemies, the U.S. and Cuba. But what event prompted this letter? And how did it play a decisive role in one of the most harrowing hijacking cases in U.S. history? November 10th, 1972. Southern Airways Flight 49 is on its way from Memphis, Tennessee to Montgomery, Alabama. But within minutes of takeoff, the routine flight erupts into chaos. The pilots hear a scuffling coming from the cabin, and all of a sudden the cockpit door flies open and one of the passengers has a gun to the head of the flight attendant. Flight 49 is being hijacked. Three armed men take control of the cockpit and radio to the Southern Airways ground crew. They demand $10 million or else they plan to do the unthinkable. The hijackers threaten to fly the plane into the Oak Ridge nuclear facility. A plane crashing into this nuclear laboratory in Tennessee would have catastrophic consequences. Southern Airways immediately contacts the FBI. And together, they assemble ransom money and radio to the hijackers with their offer. They said, if you land in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we'll give you that money along with anything else that you want. Satisfied, the armed men comply, bypassing Oak Ridge Nuclear Facility and landing safely in Tennessee, where their money is delivered to them. 
Southern Airways officials breathe a sigh of relief. At this point, they have to be thinking that now that the money's been paid, they'll let us go. But their relief is short-lived. The hijackers refuse to let anyone off the plane. The fate of the passengers and crew hangs in the balance. Will they make it out alive? It's 1972. Three armed men have seized control of Southern Airways Flight 49, threatening to kill the passengers and crew. Can the FBI save the day? 24 hours into the standoff, the police and FBI make a daring decision. They start to fire at the plane's landing gear. But rather than surrender, the hijackers make a daring decision of their own. They tell the captain to take off again. This time, they order the captain to fly to the only place they think they can find refuge. Cuba. Hijackers of the past went to Cuba because they thought that they could gain asylum. Since Castro's rise to power, strict embargoes divide the U.S. and Cuba. And without diplomatic relations between the two, Cuba is beyond the long arm of the law. It was obvious that there were tensions between the two countries. When the hijackers exit the aircraft, there, waiting on the tarmac, is Premier Castro himself. But this time, there's no warm reception. Castro realized that this was not just literally somebody perceiving themselves as a, as a downtrodden American wanting asylum in Cuba. These were bad men. The passengers are immediately flown back to the United States. But the three hijackers, identified as Lewis Moore, Henry Jackson, and Melvin Kale, are put in a Cuban prison. Now, U.S. authorities face another dilemma. How do they convince their sworn enemy to return these criminals to American soil to face justice? The Americans didn't want this, this type of criminality to go unpunished. With standard diplomatic procedures out of the question, it falls to the Airline Pilots Association president, J.J. O'Donnell, to reach out to the enemy. He sends this letter directly to Castro with an emphatic plea to hand over the hijackers to U.S. authorities. And despite a history marked by tension and confrontation, Castro miraculously agrees. Everybody wanted to bring this to as nonviolent an ending as it could be, and, and, and they did. The hijackers are returned to the U.S. and convicted of air piracy. They are sentenced to terms of 20 to 25 years in prison. And today, the unassuming letter that bridged the gap between the United States and Cuba sits on display at the Ruther Library in Detroit, a stunning reminder of how two enemies can join forces in the name of safety for all citizens. On the banks of the Susquehanna River sits Harrisburg, home to the State Museum of Pennsylvania. Here you can find prehistoric creatures, marvels of industrial engineering, and one rugged item from a dark time in Pennsylvania's past. 
For museum director David Dunn, the details are in its design. It's a one-of-a-kind vehicle, all made of stainless steel, very heavy-duty items. Outfitted with six wheels, cameras, and mechanical arms, it is controlled remotely through a long cable. It was designed for places that humans couldn't go. When this vehicle was called to duty, hundreds of thousands of lives were on the line. What role did it play in the worst nuclear disaster in American history? 1979, Pennsylvania. The power plant at Three Mile Island is at the heart of the nation's efforts to harness a clean and efficient energy source, nuclear power. But it's not without risk. At the center of the process is a highly toxic nuclear material, uranium. So basically you have nuclear pellets, then you have a casing or a rod outside of that pellet, and you're covering those with water, and they're heating up the water, which turns it into steam. And you need the steam to turn turbines, which then produce electricity. The key to safe operation is controlling the temperature of the volatile and hot uranium core. In 1979, Three Mile Island has a solid safety record, but that's about to change. March 28th. Overnight personnel at the power plant are alerted by the wailing of an alarm. The pressure within core reactor two has grown dangerously high. Within seconds, the carefully calibrated safety system kicks into gear. It turned off the reactor itself, plunging the core into the water. And it opened up a pressure release valve at the, at the roof of the, the reactor, which was exactly what it was supposed to do. With the incredibly hot nuclear fuel rods submerged in cooling water, it seems that a crisis has been averted. But the trouble is just beginning. The temperature within the reactor is now rising at an alarming rate, and no one can figure out why. They had all these hundreds of alarm lights flashing at them, but not a single one to tell them exactly what was happening, where, or why. While panicked workers race to identify the problem, steam in the reactor raises pressures to dangerously high levels. If the temperatures and pressure continue to build, the result will be catastrophic. So the entire containment chamber of Three Mile Island would actually explode, emitting tons of radiation into the air. Then a new shift of workers arrives and makes a critical discovery. The safety valve that released pressure when the reactor was initially shut down is stuck in the open position. The water intended to cool the core has been evaporating through the open valve. Which means that the core itself is becoming uncovered. And all of the heat that this core is producing, there's no way to mitigate that heat. With the core exposed to the air, temperatures in the reactor exceed 2,000 degrees Celsius. Workers pump in water to reduce the blazing temperature. But it's too late. The core is melting down. The nuclear fuel rods have reached such a scorching temperature, they are reducing the surrounding metal and concrete to a radioactive mass. As the melting core generates more and more heat, a deadly nuclear explosion seems imminent.
It's 1979. The Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania is in the midst of a terrifying meltdown. Can the workers contain the deadly radiation and prevent a catastrophe? News of the meltdown spreads. And fearing a leak of deadly radiation, the region begins to panic. There was no evacuation plan. The state didn't know what was going on. The media didn't know what was going on. It was very controlled pandemonium. At the plant, crews have but one option to cool down the melting reactor. Pump it full of water. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of water are forced into the reactor. Now workers can only wait to see if the strategy succeeds. Then the raging temperatures in the core slowly begin to fall. And the meltdown stops. The immediate crisis is over, but the reactor still poses a deadly threat. It contains over 2 million gallons of radioactive water and over 150 tons of radioactive wreckage. If this toxic waste leaks into the environment, it will expose thousands in the surrounding community to deadly radiation poisoning. Scientists have never attempted such a massive cleanup, and they have no idea how long it will take. And somehow they have to get that reactor decontaminated and defueled. But there's a problem. The reactor is far too dangerous for humans to enter. So over the next year, scientists devise a new method for entering the reactor and removing the waste. And the solution is robots like this, designed and built specifically to decontaminate Three Mile Island. The automated vehicles traverse the radioactive ruins, offering engineers the first look inside the toxic reactor. Then they begin the monumental task of removing tons of deadly debris and water. And after 14 years, the cleanup is complete and the danger is neutralized, thanks in part to this robot. Today it remains on view at the State Museum of Pennsylvania, a reminder of the both awesome and terrifying potential of nuclear power. From primitive robots to tragic celebrities, nuclear disasters to poisonous plots. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.